inherent in making it is and and in living reliably off of your music is understanding that the the current age is reliant on your ability to navigate apps that get destroyed and um, you can kind of <laughs> anticipate that you need to diversify constantly yes honestly um, and and be aware of of the relationship of the market with your music because nobody wants to but you do have to kind of be an entrepreneur in this mm-hmm. environment this episode is brought to you by band zoogle from garage bands to grammy winners band zoogle powers the websites for tens of thousands of musicians around the world i can tell you firsthand Bandzoogle is awesome. I've been using them for years. I've built many, many websites on Bandzoogle. It's super simple. You don't need any coding knowledge, graphic design knowledge. I'm actually a really terrible graphic design artist. I'd like to think I'm okay. I'm decent. I have Photoshop and, you know, I've designed my fair share of show posters over the years. I should not have. I'm not a good graphic design artist. I know my strengths and weaknesses. Anyway, Banzoogle, you don't need any of that. You can be a horrible graphic designer artist like me. You don't need any coding knowledge. I know very, very, very basic HTML that I learned about 15 years ago. I can still design kick-ass websites on Banzoogle. They also have a bunch of other cool features like a way to create an EPK. You can host and create your custom domain name. There's tools to sell your music and merch it's all commission-free. There's a mailing list. There's social media integrations. They have a crowdfunding feature, which is very new and very cool. They have a subscription service, kind of like Patreon. Also, all commission-free. If you want to try out Bandzoogle, you can go to bandzoogle.com. Use the code ARI. That's just A-R-I, my name, ARI for 15% off the first year of any subscription, but you get a 30-day free trial to just give it a go. Try it out. What's going on? Welcome to the New Music Business. I'm your host, Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business, the book. Today, my guest is Ricky Montgomery. You may know him from his Vine days. He was one of those Vine stars. You may know him from his band, Honey Sticks, or you may know him because a couple of his songs went crazy viral on TikTok in 2020, which turned into a massive bidding war amongst, uh, I believe, around 50 major labels. And it ended up with him signing with Warner Records. Now, this is a very interesting deal he signed. We get all into the weeds of this. So I encourage you to listen to the very end if you want to hear what major label deals for some artists are looking like these days and definitely not for others. He gives some pretty interesting anecdotes of how the bidding wars went down with Warner and all the other major labels and what the landscape is looking like these days for contract negotiations. And if you're an attorney out there or manager, I definitely encourage you to listen to this because you're not going to find this info in in Donald Bassman's latest edition of his book. Believe me, I've read it. As always, please like and subscribe. Follow this show however you're listening to it. If you could leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that really helps. If you're listening on YouTube right now, please comment. Let me know your favorite part. Find me on Instagram or Twitter at Ari Herstan. Of course, follow Ricky Montgomery. 
all over the platforms, especially TikTok. His TikToks are hilarious these days, but of course, he is on Instagram and YouTube and Twitter and the rest. You can find all of us that make this show happen at Ari's Take on Instagram and Twitter and now TikTok. We definitely, yes, have a TikTok. You can find us over there. And make sure you visit Ari'sTake.com. Sign up on that email list. That's where you can get the most up-to-date information, where we let you know about new episodes, but more importantly, what's happening in the industry and reviewing companies, comparing them, all the stuff that you need to know running your career. Ari'sTake.com. Check it out. All right, let's kick into the show. Ricky Montgomery, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Hello. And where are you coming to me right now? You're in LA, right? I'm in LA and I am uh, specifically at Bedrock LA, which is a kind of rehearsal and recording space in Echo Mm. Park. So I've got a studio here. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Like a lockout kind of space. Yeah. It's like I have a live room and a control room, so it's like a mm-hmm. little different than like a traditional lockout. I have another okay. other lockout space for like specifically rehearsals. Rehearsals, um, sure. That I okay. share with some other folks. Um, but this is just my little space. And is this something that you got uh, because you're going stir crazy uh, at home during COVID and you didn't, or did you just, did you have a, a home studio or working space at home or when did this situation arise? Uh, that's a big part of it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So like, <clears throat> honestly, it, it arose cause I got signed. Um, frankly, <laughs> hey, um, and, and right. so I was like, well, I can afford a studio now. And, but also like, man, it was like a month into COVID and, um, mm-hmm. I was just like writing, like I wasn't performing or anything. And, um, I have an upstairs neighbor, um, and, mm-hmm. I must have been, I guess I was singing and I got a text and they said, hey, um, I'm doing an essay right now for school. Can you not, like, can you like wait an hour? And I was like, if I'm not even doing like a live stream or something, this is just not going to yeah. work. Um, and yeah. so once I had the opportunity, I decided to come here and I've wanted to go to Bedrock for a while. It's like, a, at least in my circles, a pretty competitive place to get a yes. lockout. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, absolutely. And are you in? Uh, are you on, live on the east side as well, Silver Lake area? I feel like I saw some of those clips in like uh, Mr. Loverman video. Yeah. Or actually, like that. you're right. Yeah. That yeah. was. Um. Sorry, I spilled water on myself. Um. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. Uh. I live in Silver Lake right now. I'm about to move, kind of to like Echo Park area. Mm-hmm. Um. To be like optimize my workflow in one kind yeah. of radius, you know, and not I can bike here now. Um, but nice. I still live in Silver Lake. I'm going to move at the end of the month. But um, yeah, so that's that's mm-hmm. kind of where I'm at. Um, we shot cool. like literally around my house for that video because, again, COVID. Um, right, so. right. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, my LA knowledge is getting greater. I moved over to the east side to Los Feliz a couple of years ago, so I've been getting the lay of the land on the east side. I was at, I was West Hollywood for eight years, um, and a very different realm, different world of Los Angeles, which is kind of cool when you move from a different part of the city because it's so spread out. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're moving cities, and you get to know a whole different part of the the town. Um, you moved at, back here. I say back here, but you moved back here in what, 2015, That's 14, right. something? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, because you were born here, but then you moved to St. Louis, um, mm-hmm. you did college in St. Louis. Um, mm-hmm. 
So now, I guess, so do you consider yourself an, an L.A. native at this point or because uh, your mom still is in St. Louis? Does that still feel home? Where's home? Um, yeah, good question. I, I do consider myself an, mm-hmm. a native because um, although my mom did move to St. Louis full time when I was 12 years old. So I, I lived here for 12 years from birth to like middle school. So I do consider myself a native. Like all my formative childhood memories are here. Sure. Um but uh, yeah, I, my parents were divorced, so I would come back to LA for summers and winters until I was about 16. Um, and mm-hmm. so I still very much feel like, I, I don't get to be called a native by other LA natives, <laughs> I've realized. Like they don't like yeah. when I say that because I don't like have certain teenage memories like of places to go or whatever. But um, Right, right. Um, I, I feel kind of like I spent 10 years in St. Louis collectively, and so mm-hmm. I feel kind of like I'm both Midwestern and an L.A. native. Um, mm. So I feel kind of hybridized a little bit. I, I have little, like, things that about Midwesternness, like polite things. Like I like to talk mm-hmm. to the people at the convenience <laughs> store when I check out and stuff like that. So Yeah, yeah. No, I did 25 years in, in Midwest. Uh, winters specifically is one of the main mm. reasons I came out to L.A., but yeah. did the Wisconsin-Minnesota thing. And um, yes, we are a polite bunch. Um, yeah. Cold <laughs> up there, though. Man, that's a freezing Way area. too cold. Way too cold. Yeah, that was one of the main reasons for the move. It was like on a tour I was on, and it was... Uh, it was blizzarding in negative 20 in Minneapolis in January and I got to LA and it was sunny and 80. I'm like, humans live here. Why don't yeah. they live anywhere? Why do they live anywhere else than here? And that was kind yeah. of, that sealed the deal for me. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, I want to step back a little bit. Um, so you spent many years uh, touring, doing the indie rock indie music guy thing uh specifically with your band the honey sticks um talk about now the shift i know you guys were about to go on a pretty big tour before mm-hmm. covid right yeah yeah and, we were. and what, what what were those rooms looking like that you were doing because I, I saw a bunch of dates on there but i didn't see the venues yeah um they were as far as capacity i want to say um, I, th- I want to say around 500, um, okay. somewhere in that ballpark. Um, we had played one show. The band was Greer, who was the headliner, and that was our first right. kind of su- like direct support tour. Mm-hmm. Um, How did you and, get that set up? Who set that one up? Um, they did, actually. They reached out to us. Cool. Um, their William Morris agent reached out to us. And so, um, yeah, um, we had played with them before um, at this venue in L, or I guess Orange County, um, called... Mm-hmm. Um, the observatory which is about a thousand and it was the first time that i had ever played in front of that many people so it was like a big kind of cool moment and then you know things were snowballing and we were like getting close to like ep kind of mixing mastering phase and then Mm -hmm. you know a virus came um and our producer almost died Oh, and obviously our our tour was you know the one you're talking about was a perpetual producer get covid is that how they almost died um it's unclear in my opinion um but um he he got whatever happened he ended up getting put on antibiotics and he thinks that he got what's called leviquin poisoning um so uh it's a type of antibiotic that i guess sometimes people have bad reactions to um and yeah i don't know caleb 
No, no. Caleb oh, okay. is is no is a member of the Honey Sticks who is no longer in the band just because gotcha. he wanted to pursue his own thing. Um, okay. So shout out to Caleb Hurst. He's got a solo project, but um, yeah. This is John Heiser is his name. Got it. Um, okay. He was in a St. Louis band called Building Rome in the mid two thousands. That was nice. pretty big in that area. Um, and yeah, uh, he just was really sick for a long time mm-hmm. um, mm. and was kind of out of commission for about. And I, I want to say six months or so. So yeah. a long time. We were very, very worried, but uh, thankfully he's okay now. So, um, okay. So th- before this, this big tour, this was your first big um, opening tour. Was mm-hmm. uh, How many gigs would you say that you'd played prior to that with the Honey Sticks? Um, <clears throat> a lot. I mean, I don't, I, I, we'd only really gone on one tour is the thing. So like okay. one official tour, we opened for a band called uh, Private Island. Um, and mm-hmm. Derek Ted was another artist there. And um, yeah, uh, other than that, I, hmm, somewhere in like the, the 30 to 40 range, I would estimate. Okay. Maybe a little less than that, but somewhere around there. We'd been active from 2015 to 2020. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, this is, you know, the headline here of, of Ricky Montgomery uh, of 2021, I guess 2020, 2021, early you know, is uh, this album that you wrote, that you released in 2016, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of those songs just catch fire four years later during a pandemic mm-hmm. on this platform called TikTok, which at the time, I were you even on? I had an account. Um, <laughs> my bio says I don't have an account, so I, I have an unofficial yeah. account. Um, okay. But... Uh, I did have one because uh, I've been in those circles for a long time and kind of talking about like social media video circles. Sure. Um, but Because um, you were a Viner back in the day. That's exactly. And that's originally how I had an audience that carried over into the Honey Sticks. But um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I did have an account, um, but I was not really active. I had maybe like four videos and they were all mm-hmm. just like me saying like, what is this, you know? And just like yeah. trolling. <laughs> um, so do you have any idea how that happened? Like how these two songs uh, caught in a way, Mr. Loverman and, and Line Without a Hook, how they caught in a way where they just started to just go on this platform? On um, well, kind of. So um, the first one was Mr. Loverman that happened in like July of 2020 and um that one i officially don't really know um what the like inception of that really was but Mm -hmm. if i had to guess um i had seen kind of like this thing happening since like late 2019 when i did like my first licensing deal Mm -hmm. um and that was for a game called osu and it's got an exclamation point in the name osu um and uh that's the name of the of the game it's like a it's like a point and click kind of like almost like ddr type game dance dance revolution type game mm-hmm. um is this a computer like game what's the or is this a, a yeah. iphone game or it's a it's a pc game i okay. think you have to download the software direct i don't gotcha. know if it's available on steam or anything but um it's a game like that and i'd noticed that my solo album was was getting popular there um and uh yeah songs like line without a hook actually were doing quite well there Mm. and that game had it seems to have like a big kind of anime 
audience. Um, and mm. that's, um, I'm not sure what really made it work there. I think like we put a lot of work into like making the rhythm really tight on that album. So I, sure. I think like maybe there's something there. Um, but, um, anyway, um, it went, it got big enough there that like some of like the, the big users, I guess, on that game relative in that small pool, um, were, uh, were playing the songs a lot and stuff. And so eventually OSU reached out to me and we were like, Hey, can we just license this? So we don't have to worry about like how often people are using your songs here. And I was like, sure, yeah. you know? Um, and so they now, were using your songs in OSU. Uh, mm-hmm. There were, uh, there's a way to use music in there that's not licensed. So you it's, didn't actually like strike a licensing deal with the game initially. It's open source, so gotcha. um, okay. anyone can kind of upload whatever they want. Um, that's Got the it. whole, I guess, format. I'm not, again, I'm not super caught up on sure. exactly how it functions, but um, yeah, uh, they they the reason that they wanted a license it was because they were offering me like a featured artist role. So basically, gotcha. the songs would kind of similar to like a like a Guitar Hero. They have a set of mm-hmm. songs that are in the game, um, short sure. of what you upload yourself. Um, uh, I would basically be like that kind of a person mm-hmm. and my whole album would be there. Um, so that was the first thing. And then, um, a few other things kind of happened along the way, but nothing quite as big as that. And then, um, yeah, the things were kind of quiet and I was focused on the honey six really from like 2016 until now I was focused fully sure. on that band. Um, and so it was kind of like a weird, like, Oh God, like <laughs> I haven't mm-hmm. put infrastructure into the solo project at all right. really. And now this moment's happening. But the second thing um, for this, so that was Mr. Loverman just kind of happened in a vacuum. Right. And then I was like, okay, I've been doing social media work a lot the last eight-ish, some amount of years, because um, I also mm-hmm. had marketing companies, which we can talk about if you want. But um, uh, so I, I kind of knew the landscape. Mm. And so I thought, okay, all I have to do is react to this moment. I can build a TikTok audience quickly just by like, mm-hmm. there's already like, you know, it's catalyzing on its own all i have to do is like put myself in front of it and my my, my, put my face on it and be like hey guys here's the song creator um and then that seems like me just doing that seems to kind of um kind of feed into the thing that was happening and Mm -hmm. i noticed one show audience in particular who were reaching out to them right now hopefully something happens with that but um it's called banana fish it's this really depressing anime um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh and uh it's really graphic so content warning but um uh-huh. uh that i just started saying i'm gonna watch this show and then once for some reason when i said that like that was the first time i had a million plays on a tiktok um oh, wow. just saying i was gonna watch it so then i did like okay i guess i'll do a watch along <laughs> and then my instagram blew up and everything and that's when the second song started happening so mm. i think just this kind of like participatory factor like yeah. kind of instigated the second song and then whenever the second song happened that's when like you know warner records reached out and all these right. other record labels, columbia and so on um i had you know well, that whole phase you were yeah i mean you were uh essentially what is so interesting also about uh tiktok functionalities is you were essentially collaborating inadvertently i i, I suppose with uh the people who were using your songs i mean some of your most popular videos are just you duetting mm-hmm. other people 
reacting to your song and you're reacting to their reaction of your song or them listening to your song or i did see an anime person there my favorite <laughs> one is just this one girl screaming that yes fuck to your song as she's probably <laughs> just like it had gotten to the point where it was it was like you know the song that gets played incessantly on the radio and you just like cannot stand to hear it one more time yeah. uh is it was like oh wow that song had reached that level of virality where it's like oh my god Great song, but please, I can't like get yeah. me away from it, um, which is every artist's dream. Um, yes. So that was hilarious. Um, but that's great. I mean, that was really smart to do. Now, is this something that was um, just natural intuition? You mentioned your marketing background that you had. You worked at a marketing mm-hmm. agency for a couple of years. Um, did some of this come from that background or was it something you were learning as you went? Uh, <clears throat> kind of where, what inspired all that? Well, yeah, so I co-founded a couple of marketing agencies, um, mm-hmm. and um, that was in 2018, um, mm-hmm. and I kind of, like, decided to go in that career direction because I had Vine, and I dropped out of college to pursue mm-hmm. kind of digital world stuff. At the time, it wasn't mm-hmm. just music. It was, like, I had done an internship at Adult Swim when I was 20 because of Vine, um, mm-hmm. and so I thought, maybe I'll try, like comedy but then i realized i didn't like the culture of that world at all um uh and um, especially in new york it's it can be uh a little aggressive i've watched i I, i'm not a comedian i'm not in the comedy world but i love the comedy world and i do those deep dives and watch every show that has to do with comedians and they don't seem uh ironically they don't really seem like a cheery bunch it could be a little (laughs) intimidating you're not wrong (laughs) man like music like i've realized is way more like camaraderie centric than comedy is um and you'd think the opposite because like they spend so much time like at shows with each other (laughs) it's it's just like competitive in a weirdly toxic way was my experience um but i did Mm -hmm. get to do some cool stuff but um anyway so um i had all this i'd like kind of done like a shotgun approach to like the digital world um and so i felt that i had a lot of different things to little pieces of knowledge you know that may be would give me a leg up in that world when I was, you know, not making enough money off of music to do it full time, but wanting to do more than just minimum wage work. Um, and sure. so eventually that led me into kind of getting hired uh, on salary at this startup and then quickly became like a, an officer at this little startup. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there, we we got a bunch of funding. It was taken away as as, as happens to start up sometimes despite our contracts um <laughs> sure. and um then i started my own creative agency for about a year and then music the passive revenue from music ended up being more than my revenue from my jobs that i was doing and so i was like well you i never hear that justify. early on <laughs> never and that was before the tiktok stuff so right so cool. so let's talk about that a little bit because I'm assuming w- this passive revenue was this coming from the Montgomery Ricky album or was this a Honey Sticks revenue stream? Yeah, so I think part of like the marketing um, for that even the, that Warner is doing is like trying to like make it simpler for people from mm-hmm, my mm-hmm. project, saying like he was doing nothing and then all of a sudden TikTok right. happened <laughs> and then all this stuff. But yeah. like really, I had millions of streams already, and so I was like right. just trying to figure out what to do next um Mm -hmm. and um uh yeah i i think that like with spotify specifically and also youtube i think um Mm -hmm. and actually tiktok as well but um specifically spotify um if you're able to hit like thresholds of streams i find Mm -hmm. 
you just get recommended more and more. And so, mm-hmm. um, especially at a million, there's like, we, me and my band, we talk about like this faucet being like turned on all of a sudden. Um, mm. And um, I think that you have those at any milestone, like 10,000 or 1,000 or, and, you know, spaces in between, obviously 100,000. But um, so I think that I've been in that kind of space for a while, really probably since 2016, because, I, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't, there was like a billboard article that called it like a nominal success. And I, I guess that is a fair way to put it. Like, it was like, not a failure, but it was like, not like right. meteoric. Um, and so... It had just kind of like been snowballing slowly over time and kind of cooking mm-hmm. and then enough things happened and then we had, you know, a depressing time, I think, was part of it. Like the songs mm-hmm, are somewhat mm-hmm. sad and then the world was sad and so mm-hmm. kind of made sense, I think, contextually. Well, I, well, let's step back a little bit because you're right. I mean, you were getting significant streams. I mean, I think just on your solo project in 2019, you you posted one of your Spotify uh, wrapped, year-end wraps, which mm-hmm. had... 10 million streams that year, which is nothing to scoff at. Um, right. And, uh, you know, and that's for the solo stuff. But so what were you doing? I mean, you guys are were running an indie music career. So, like, mm-hmm. let's ju- just talk through a little bit of, of that, what uh, the day-to-day, what you were working on. Because, okay, so you notice when you get to these levels, the 10,000, the 1 yeah. million, you know, that the algorithm picks up a little bit and starts the recommendation engine starts going and you're starting to get in all these extra playlists and stuff like that. But I'm assuming there was more behind the scenes that you guys were actually facilitating more than it just, yeah. it's happening sure. magically. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think um, the Honey Sticks was kind of... <clears throat> In my head, I thought of it as like a lateral move. Um, so mm-hmm. um, um, when I moved to L.A., originally I moved to L.A. really because I wanted to come back home was how I thought of it spiritually. Mm-hmm. But more pragmatically, I thought of it as, okay, I want to be in a better music industry than St. Louis can offer me. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's not a – there is an industry, but it's not necessarily what I felt where I wanted to go was happening. Um, and so mm-hmm. – um, there's Went only to, so many people that are going to buy records from Vintage Vinyl, right? Exactly. Well, yeah, you know about Vintage Vinyl. Thank you. Shout out to Vintage there. Vinyl. Shout out to Vintage. Yeah, Dude, the Loop, man. Yeah, of course. The Loop. My brother, no lives, my brother lives in St. Louis, and I, I used oh. to tour through there a bunch. So, yeah. That, cool. I, I lived at Vintage Vinyl when I would ever go there. It's a great spot. Well, I was told by APA that St. Louis is a tertiary market recently. Okay. So, um, love that. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that speaks to kind of the perception from the industry of that city and kind of why mm-hmm. I felt I had to leave um, if I wanted yeah. to quickly have something happen. Um, yes. Anyway, um, so uh, I decided, okay, I've spent, I was in bands in St. Louis since I was 14 and I did fairly well. Like I got, you know, my band was mentioned on the radio one time, which is crazy. All the people in my high school were like, whoa. But is this like MySpace I, era? Are we, yes. Is this what we're talking here? Okay. It is so MySpace. Yeah, I had a MySpace crew. Uh, pure volume was what I ended up going to after MySpace, which oh, yeah. didn't really happen for long. Um, and, <laughs> I remember pure volume. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you have an, the emo hair swoop going on at the time too? The MySpace little, swoop? I was never yeah. like that confident to like like embody like a like a fashion trend enough in high school so i was kind of just like a bit of a normie i think but um got it um so uh yeah so we were just i was doing the ground game stuff in la because i thought okay um i know that the touring market is different than the streaming market i already knew that Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. um i had to build up the touring market and 
I tried going on tour with the solo album first and just doing Ricky Montgomery with like a band that I got, you know, uh, from a mixture of friends and Craigslist. Um, mm -hmm. And um, then I realized, oh, I can't afford touring. <laughs> like it's yeah. very Especially expensive. Especially not with a band. Yeah. yeah. No, not at all. And so I decided, okay, well, let's just build in LA then. Um, and then I kind of realized I didn't like being a solo artist as much. So I did, you know, the Honey Sticks. It started out as Ricky mm -hmm. Montgomery and the Honey Sticks as a way to kind of funnel fans there um and um and yeah so that's that's you know what we were doing for a long time and and we got better and better at it as time went on we realized kind of more infrastructural things we had to do like eventually we realized oh we shouldn't buy merch in bulk we should use a print on demand company um mm -hmm. things like that um like little kind of cheats and 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 hacks um Talk about the streaming side. So you you realize that, okay, touring is very expensive. So let's work mm -hmm. the streaming angle and just play shows around LA. I think I saw in one of the Honey Six videos, uh, 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 you guys playing the satellite at some point. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, was it the satellite or the Echo? There was like some... Uh, there are some stream like like glittery streamy things, which is like reminiscent of what oh, the satellite was in the background of that. Or where was that? Uh, that's Amplify. Um, yeah, oh, that's a, that's amplify. amplify. Oh Hell gosh. Yeah. We, oh, I remember that. Yeah. In, in the beginning, this is <laughs> the all ages some venue. Some advice for for LA musicians who are trying to make things work. I realized really early on that free shows were all twenty one plus in LA, mm -hmm. um, and I had a young audience, and so I was in a pickle, and I realized, okay, cut out the middleman. I'm renting the venue, um, yeah. and so. Amplify was the most affordable venue that I could rent. And so it was 80 capacity so that I could start saying, I sold out all these shows this month um, mm -hmm. or this, you know, I, I, I tried only doing one a month um, at the time. Um, but um, And this was all ages, Amplify. All ages, because I could do an all ages right. show and make the profit, most of it, off of it. Because we did one show with like some like um, Sonic Bids person um if you know sonic okay. um yes. i don't know some some <laughs> some booking agency that that works there um and i realized right. these are 14 dollar tickets what the hell is happening like yeah and so then we changed it to eight dollars or like nine dollars or something and so mm -hmm. we we like kind of like you know got a bit like more microeconomic in our approach um and um yeah really committed to that slow slow burn even though we did have you know i had like you know 200k on vine at the time and like i had a fair amount of online stuff happening um and so yeah it was just like slowly grinding on in the mm -hmm. la area um and then kind of once we realized okay like it's it's mean to our fans to continue playing an 80 capacity venue and so then we started right. going to el cid was another place we went to we would also sure. do the same same kind of thing. They actually have an in-house person who does their booking, mm -hmm. so it's it's a little easier. But um, so you were yeah. you were grinding the LA scene, um, but so so let's talk uh, streaming um, and and how oh, yeah. you were building this up and, yeah. and like tricks and <clears throat> tips and what yeah how'd you figure this out? Um, the best thing that I've ever done for streaming. Um, it, I I I say this to a lot of people, and they don't like it when I say this. But it's the best solution, in my opinion. It's just getting a, an influencer kind of side to your brand, um, and like figuring out some sort of way to exist on a digital platform, um, like you have, for example. You know, mm -hmm. like this kind of like you know 
other side of your like you know music career in a way um and um for me it's been doing like online videos and just like kind of doing like dumb content um less Mm -hmm. so now but a lot in the beginning that's why you know i ended up kind of getting distracted and going to adult swim for a while because i always went into vine thinking oh this is going to be a trampoline for my music career um and um i'll just figure out how to make it work and a lot of people do that and it works at a pretty pretty crazy degree in my experience with people like they'll go in and they'll start making like memes and stuff or they'll start making you know whatever feels natural for them Mm -hmm. i don't think you should go in thinking like oh there's the best way to do it is memes or the best way to do it is covers or the best way to do is is x um Mm -hmm. i think you need to try a few things and then figure out what creates analytics for you and then just follow that um, and Mm -hmm. then see how you can improve on it and be self-critical and be realistic and and from there you know find natural opportunities to drop your links and stuff and Mm -hmm. and be patient you know but but that's in my view the best way to do to get streams from a digital platform so vine died end of 2016 um Mm -hmm. and what did had you leveraged that audience off the platform somewhere else? Yeah, so I had been working on that for a long time. I put out my first EP in 2014. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'd been on Vine the day after the app launched um, in huh. 2013, January 25th. Um, and <laughs> um, yeah, when the very beginning, I, I was just lucky. And I saw like a CNN article that was talking about Vine, like, Mm-hmm. Twitter has this new app. Can it change the world in six seconds? And I was like, what does that mean? Um, and <laughs> then I downloaded it. And yeah, like we just started, me and my friends just started making videos and we got in like the popular now page, which at the time, like cool. you had to get like 80 likes to get on it. But like, right, right. Um, I thought, okay, Twitter owns this. So it's going to be famous. Um, mm-hmm. It was my logic. Um, so mm-hmm. I should just get big now before the app does, and then I'll Smart. reap the rewards. Um, and so mm-hmm. it, it worked. <laughs> um, <Yep>. And um, <laughs> uh, TikTok, I think, you know, was a little different because it was a merger. Um, so it was Musical.ly and TikTok. Um, right. So there was no point in the app's career where it was small necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. um, but from Vine, so so um, so you had this mm-hmm. following on Vine. You'd built it up for the three almost four years. Uh, you have this great following, hundreds of thousands of people. Now, uh, were you taking them when you know they gave yeah. they gave a little bit of a warning saying you know what like. Vine's dying in like two months, so so everybody's scrambling. Yeah. It's like, were you pointing people to Instagram? Were you pointing people to YouTube? Did you get their email lists? Like, what were you doing to be like, oh gosh, like I don't want to lose my entire following because this platform that I built up, there it's going. So yeah, what'd you do? I I was lucky because I'd been doing it for years, like the whole kind okay. of seeding to other platforms, um, like yeah, I bring up the 2014 EP because that's when I like officially started marketing my music on vine um Mm -hmm. and uh, before that i had been teasing it and i had i was always conscious of diversification um on on so of social medias Mm -hmm. because of um just you know the kind of um the nature of of the career that i wanted was like okay i don't want them to be on vine forever so i should already Mm -hmm. start working to say hey if you want to follow me on instagram or on youtube or whatever yeah. Here are my handles. Um, so occasionally, you know, 
what you would do on Vine, and I think it's it's platform specific, the ways that you want to accomplish this. I think TikTok is a little different, but for Vine, um, I would just occasionally post a Vine and be like, here's my mm-hmm. Instagram, you know, um, mm-hmm. really is what I would do. Um, and then, yeah, it gets easier as your as your platform builds to to have success sure. in that. But in the beginning, like you maybe get five followers, maybe six, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, but that's well, all I part asked, of it. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I asked this because you know we've seen this time and time again of uh, the artists build up massive followings on a platform. That platform dies. The artist didn't transfer that audience or get the audience contact information in any capacity. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I experienced this firsthand. Um, I toured with a MySpace star. Um, he was one of the biggest, you know, my, it was always like in the charts. It was like top three unsigned artists. He was always in the top three. Yeah. And we went on a, you know, <clears throat> we we set up this tour for 2011. It was a huge 60-day tour. And mind you, 2011 is about a year, year and a half after MySpace kind of went, you know, kaput more or less. Right. And um, he had like 70 million streams on MySpace. It was just like he, he was the MySpace king. But he hadn't transferred any of those fans elsewhere, so we went on this huge tour. We drastically—I was the—I was the, I was the uh, support act, but we drastically undersold tickets because he had no way of getting in touch with any of these fans. Like he had sold—I think it was something like ten or twenty thousand downloads in just the city of Dallas alone. And like we're like, oh man, like we are gonna crush in Dallas, and like yeah. you know, two hundred people show up to the show. It's like, but that's the thing is like iTunes wasn't giving us their email uh, addresses, so we could like email them and be like, hey, coming through town, you're gonna dig, you know. Yeah. Uh, but like, so it's it's a cautionary tale because okay, MySpace died. I had a lot of friends who were Viners also, and. Uh, you know, they right. didn't necessarily have the foresight where they had hundreds of thousands of followers too. They didn't transfer them. So when Vine died, they lost their following and then were scrambling. You know, it's we're seeing this, it's it's cyclical. And so mm-hmm. we don't know how long TikTok's gonna stick around and what it's yeah. gonna look like. But um, so you had the foresight early on and you knew like were you now taking them just pointing them to YouTube, pointing them to Instagram? Or were you like, hey, like, I, I've I've seen this story before. Let me get your emails. Let me get your phone numbers. Let me, <laughs> let me own the fans, not just rent them to other social platforms. Yeah, I think I had a, the producer I was working with was also a MySpace person. And so maybe mm-hmm. like in my head, I had maybe in a subconscious way been aware of the inherent, you know, imper- impermanence of all of these places, including YouTube and, you know, you could make an argument for Facebook or whatever, but like, um, um, you know, stretch out time enough, but like, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was just doing that really. I was, I was, I just, I knew from, from, you know, crimes of the past, hopefully one day we can get some kind of union or something, you know? So like, cause Mm -hmm. when Vine happened and I'm sure when MySpace happened too, like, Mm-hmm. careers were destroyed you know like like yes. i'm sure that guy who had a had a major hit and like yep you know not everyone's built to diversify like no one we're not we're not all good at it you know and so mm-hmm. we don't we shouldn't have to be you know mm-hmm. um in my opinion and recently um this wasn't even a story anywhere like twitter there was a vine archive um that they still hosted the website um from Whoa. 2017 because it went out it technically went down in in January 2017. You were right. They they okay. made it. Actually, I have an anecdote I'll tell in a second about the day that okay. it went down. But like, um, okay. um, uh, so 
Divine Archive was just deleted the other day, like two weeks ago or a week ago, um, which was where they housed all the vines that were still loading. Huh. Um, and it, they just deleted it. And I'd been hearing uh. about how Twitter is like, oh, Twitter's trying to like triple their revenue this year to impress investors post-Trump presidency or something like that. Right, Because, you right. know, now they're, yeah, I don't know, maybe going to see less usership. But, like, um, so I have to assume that they cut a corner there on, like, the cost of the servers or something, you know. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's sure. what I in, in, inferred. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, um, and, yeah, so, the, you know, there, there's just, you're right, there's this trend that's not a short-lived trend of mm-hmm. just creators who who create the platforms effectively – they create what mm-hmm. they become mm-hmm. and do all the content for free. Vine was not paying. MySpace, I assume, was also not paying creators. TikTok, nope. you know, bless them, have learned that lesson at least, and they have a creator program. Mm-hmm. But, like, and YouTube is actually, in my opinion, one of the better places for this. But, like, um, they just, yeah, they just fuck up careers permanently, and they don't yeah. they don't even say sorry, you know? <laughs> like, they don't do yeah. anything yeah. about it. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's something that I had learned uh, the, you know, the uh the apathy of of you know maybe just maybe just capitalism um mm-hmm. affecting art treating it as well, extra i mean that's interesting because uh, absolutely you know social platforms traditionally have had little to no regard for the creators that make them what they are and that's a, a story as as old as the internet uh, mm-hmm. because you know silicon valley and and um just these these uh, platform creators, these uh, developers, whatever, they are interested in growth. They're interested in freedom of information and freedom and and down with copyright and IP. Everything is should be free. Um, and you know that's always been the battle between the music industry and uh, Silicon Valley, and mm-hmm. that's like you know as old as Napster and and where the right. industry was battling them and, and all of that. But then also being said, I mean it has in a sense democratized the music industry. Like there were artists that built careers from MySpace. Sure, they weren't getting paid directly from MySpace, but MySpace gave them a platform when labels wouldn't when mm-hmm. they weren't getting the blessing of the industry at the time and and this has continued on and we're seeing this now is just like you know um in a massive way in in 2020 you know DIY artists non-label artists made over 2 billion dollars on just recorded music collectively wow. like this is a massive massive force right now because of the internet you know so it's like right. yes i fully empathize like on one hand yeah of course, streaming, uh, not just stream, but like uh, social platforms should be compensating their creators in a better way. I mean, you think YouTube's doing a great job. That's great. But like the ad revenue, well, the split is like, it's a, it's not great. Like not you, need great. Like, gaz- you need gazillions of views to actually yeah. see some some revenue from their or ad yeah. split. But regardless, you know, and, and of course, like Spotify, uh, yes, there are a lot of artists making really significant livings um, from Spotify revenue. It, it is a misnomer that Spotify doesn't pay. It pays really well, especially if you get you know blessed by the playlist gods. Um, you know, I, it came out last year that Spotify that on Spotify alone there are forty three thousand 
musicians who are making a living just from Spotify revenue. That's yeah. more musicians, more individual musicians than the history of the music industry at, at any given time, at a certain yeah. moment in time. So we can talk about, okay, Spotify has enabled that. And yes, they're paying less, you know, less than half a penny a stream. And you look at that, but it's a totally different conversation. But yeah, this all brings me to the point and the question that has been burning in me and the reason that I brought you on is, uh, so... This episode is brought to you by the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective. Don't tune out. This is really important. If you're a songwriter based in the United States, you need to listen to this. If you've never heard of the MLC, well, it's time that you've heard of them. This is the organization that was set up by the Music Modernization Act, but in 2018, all of this nonsense, you don't actually need to know. That's not important. What is important is that if you are a songwriter and you do not have a publishing company, you are not collecting all of your songwriter royalties, specifically your mechanical royalties. There are two kinds of songwriter royalties when your songs are streamed on Spotify, Apple Music, and the rest. Those are performance royalties, which are collected by your performing rights organization, like an ASCAP or a BMI. And there are mechanical royalties. These royalties are now, by law, only collected by the MLC. So if you're not a member of the MLC, you're not getting these royalties unless you have a publisher. If you don't have a publishing company or an independent songwriter, you need to sign up for the MLC to get your mechanical royalties. And you need to sign up for, of course, a performing arts organization to get your performance royalties. So head on over to themlc.com and sign on up. Thank me later. We're in an a landscape right now where DIY indie musicians are thriving. You don't need the major label infrastructure uh, to have a successful career. Mm-hmm. Now, I am very curious as someone who had been running a, a successful indie music career, um, why did you choose to sign with a major label? Um, I know I read somewhere you had like a bidding war of like 50 labels coming at you, but like, mm-hmm. you know, if the story of 2020 that's going down in the history books, the story of 2020 in the music industry is that every signing of every major label was someone who broke out on TikTok like you or went viral on TikTok. Yeah. So I'm curious, why did you decide to sign with a major label like Warner Records? Yeah, um, because we got a great deal is the is the short answer. Um, okay. So I own my master's. Uh, maybe Warner doesn't want me to say that, but I do. No shit, uh, that's I huge. Do. Okay, and I I don't right. need to go too far into the nitty gritty of my of my of my deal. Um, but uh, I did retain ownership. Um, huge. And there is a fairly long licensing period. I will say, as a sort of mm-hmm. like you know to uh, also say that. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, the way that <clears throat> it typically works currently um, is that when you retain ownership of your masters, they do have licensing, exclusive licensing to your catalog, whatever you've signed over um, for a certain amount of time. So the licensing is huge that the fact that you're not giving up ownership of the masters. Now Mm -hmm. explain what the difference is between a licensing deal where you retain ownership, but they have exclusive licensing for, you know, X number of years versus giving them your masters in perpetuity. What's the difference? So I'm not an expert, but uh, as far as sure. my understanding of that yes. is um, the ownership of the masters thing is more of like an old school 
way of doing label mm-hmm. stuff. That's what happened with like, mm-hmm. you know, the Beatles, for example, or other artists they were from earlier or some more recent decades. But um, mm-hmm. so you would, you know, get a big advance and everything for a certain number of albums. But then typically you would, um, you know, obviously advances are a debt model. Um, mm-hmm. So you will get an advance of your estimated royalties over mm-hmm. a certain amount of time say one year, um, and they'll pay you that up front off of calculations that they've made, educated guesses of what you were supposedly, you know, looking at the data, you'll make, you know, $1.5 million in a year. So let's give you $2 million, and then you recoup at a certain split rate. Um, 50-50 yes. is sort of common. Um, and um, I mean, traditionally market, for major labels, it was they would keep 85%. You'd get 15% yeah. only after you recouped. Technically, um, it's 16%. But uh, yes, no, sure, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> about, about that, yeah. So that that is the traditional, uh, yeah. you know, master ownership model. So you're saying mm-hmm. with the li- so the licensee model these days, or what you're seeing, is more of a fifty fifty royalty split, or we're not on that model yet that you're talking about. Um, it depends. So it's 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 sort of varied, um, mm-hmm. which is another reason why we decided to go as opposed to saying independent. Because originally, when we had Mr. Leverman happening, we did have some labels reach out. We had APG slash Atlantic reach out. We had mm-hmm. Columbia reach out. Um, and a couple others offered me a single licensing deal, which mm. no one should take um, because effectively they buy your master from you, offer you an advance of like 30K um, for a song that's doing viral numbers. So they're right. buying your song basically mm. in effect. Um, and then they would own the master. And the reason that, you know, artists, I'm speaking not at you, but artists who don't know this, um, mm-hmm. uh you don't have any control over what happens with the songs. So, right. you know, you know, maybe you don't want your song used for, let's say this wouldn't happen, but let's say a Trump rally um, mm-hmm. and you don't want it to be used there. You wouldn't necessarily be able to say no to that. Not that the label would want that to happen, but like, let's just say that they sure. did and, and you didn't want it. You wouldn't be the person to say you can't do that because it's not your legal right anymore. Um, right. You've waived that. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so in, in olden times, it was more of the 84-16 split, and they would retain ownership. And even after you recoup, as in you pay back your master through your – or your advance through all your royalties, then you only mm-hmm. make 16% of your total streaming revenue. And then right. if you have splits with other people, say a producer or band members, then you make even less. And so – yes. It's great, you know. There, it's been a really nice model all up until this time. Super fair um, <laughs> for the labels, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so I'll I'll just go a little bit further into the the gra- the weeds here with um with stuff because um, I had to learn all this a few months ago. Yes. Um, and um, yeah, fifty fifty is a lot more common now. Um, and. Uh, I think that that's mostly because of what you're describing with this indie market being way bigger and obviously, you know, piracy and Spotify, the whole history there has has played mm-hmm. into that. But more so, I think it's because you have more autonomy now. And I, especially mm-hmm. in my position, I had a lot of autonomy and I had a lot of leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, not only did I, did I have a bidding war, but I also had, you know, at least the illusion of control over the numbers because I, you know, it per their perspective and per my arguments in our meetings, I was like, well, I created this second wave with this other song, so maybe I can do another one. Um, I don't know. You don't know. Um, So (laughs) 
so that was part of I was I had a rare situation and I was very fortunate. Um, but mm-hmm. usually people will have a fifty fifty deal. You you'll hear people you you know I don't want to say it, I don't want to tell people's details of their of their deals. But a lot of artists that people listen to a lot have fifty fifty deals with you know Interscope or Republic or these other large labels. And um, and sometimes they will have an ownership of their masters, but fifty fifty is a lot more common now. Um, I mean, this is this with the history of this. This is relatively a, a very new concept. Like major mm-hmm. labels were not doing licensing deals. They definitely weren't doing fifty fifty deals, even as near as like five six years ago. So like we are in a very very new era where they're offering this stuff. You know. It's in like in the history of the music industry, there's only like a handful of artists and they always make headlines when they actually get to retain their ownership of their masters. You know, it was like Ray Charles and it was, you know, there's just like Janet Jackson. Like there's just a few of these artists that have ever been able to retain their master ownership from the labels because the labels were always the ones that had clout. It was never like I've never seen a higher percentage uh, than like 20% that the artist gets. Now we're talking 50, 60%. Like this is a whole new era we're in because of what has happened with the indie DIY community and the massive success that artists are having. And yes, the labels are like, they don't need us anymore. Whereas like before, the -hmm. labels were the gatekeepers. Now they're not. And like the labels are like a bank, but they have connections. And so that brings me to, you know, again, why Warner? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's why we decided to go with a label because Mm -hmm. you're not, you know, you're not wrong. Like you you have the ability to make money as a musician, but you don't have the ability as much. There's a, there are walls still. So playlisting is one of those situations. Sure. You can get on some editorial playlists without a label. Um, you can make friends with people, say Lorem is a good example. There's like a certain curator who people have become, you know, friends with and, and they have, you know, their own tastes and they discover stuff on their own. But like there's, that's more of like an, you can get there independently. And I've been playlisted before without label backing. But once I got on a label, it was like, oh my God, like it's just so much more access Mm. to that particular market, which is a very valuable market. And then also, um, you know, there, like, there's a certain social cachet that comes with being on a label. Like, even just this studio that I'm in right now, like, mm-hmm. I CC'd my label people on the email, you know? Like, mm-hmm. there are certain, like, individual moments where it makes you look more serious or more of, like, a sure bet for things. Like, um, it's like having a high credit score or something. It's like, you know, like, you just have a certain <laughs> kind of, like air around you that people take more seriously because there's infrastructure kind of that you can fall back on and also i don't need to be in charge of digital marketing anymore i don't need to be in charge of uh outreach to uh radio stations in indonesia and things like that (laughs) like which happens you know like uh, real things that i'm doing on a weekly basis that i i don't i have to all I can, all I have to do in my daily life is sit down and read an email, as opposed to mm-hmm. do all that stuff. And I do have a manager, but even the two of us mm-hmm. are not necessarily able to do all of these things. And sure. I don't think that you need these things as a musician. It's a, it's a question of where do you want to scale to, mm-hmm. and what are your specific goals. And for me, I wanted to be an international artist, and I wanted mm-hmm. to 
um, there, you did, there's just only so much that one person can do at the end of the day. Sure. And there are Absolutely. other major, uh, similar situations to a major label. Say you can go to a, do a distribution deal, like mm-hmm. AWOL is an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Level is another place. And there are, mm-hmm. there are these places with really competitive distribution rates, you know, like mm-hmm. below 10% sometimes um, mm-hmm. of, of what you pay them from your royalties. Um, right. And uh, and I recommend those to to people who don't have access to to labels. Um, we did STEM. We actually still with the Honey Six do STEM. Um, so uh, oh, great. There's a lot of stuff like that. Um, yeah, STEM's ten percent. They used to be five percent. Now they're ten percent. Uh, yeah. Women run. Milana is amazing CEO yeah. of STEM. Uh, there's STEM. There's AWOL. There's uh, you know the Orchard, Ingrus, Believe, Level, yeah. Empire. These are all these more or less you call them label services, independent distribution companies, which take anywhere from ten to twenty percent. Typically, they keep of that commission, but they have a lot of these more label services that they offer. And for most people, that's all you need. You know, like mm-hmm. I, th- I find that um, up until like, um, you know, doing international touring and stuff like you can do the, all of that through mm-hmm. one of these distributors. So like you don't need to, you know, there's there, you, it's not wrong that you can retain a lot of your independence without a label now. And I think, and they do know that. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the certain labels, the biggest ones, um, mm-hmm. will cert will still not do certain deals. I was told <laughs> we tried to have a certain label, um, match our offer yeah. From Warner, um, who we ended up going with, obviously. Um, and they responded, we only do that for Beyonce. Um, right. And that's... So I but said, that, okay. The, <laughs> but that's the thing is like, that's why, I, I mean, it's very surprising to me hearing that you got a licensing deal from Warner uh, with, I'm assuming, a fairly sizable advance. I don't know how much. Yeah, I don't know how reveal, much. But I don't know if I want to get an email from the CEO of Warner after this. But like, um, <laughs> all right, fine. We can we can cut that too. But but um, but, but that's yes. the thing. Is this like I, you know, it is very astounding, and maybe that's why your publicist is on the call right now too. Like, <laughs> she's gonna come at me afterwards. Like, we're cutting from thirty three to forty. We gotta get minutes. him out of there. It's out. It's out. <laughs> I'm waiting for her to bring the cane out and just to yank no, you out of the they, Zoom screen. They, <laughs> they are not very controlling. They are very fair label to me. So okay, I should no, say that. and that's great. So explain to me. Um, I, I'm still not clear on you know. I've read Passman's book. I think we all have. Like we we know the you know how the history of, of record labels work and and all of that. But this licensing thing is a a, a really new concept in the major mm-hmm. label space. And like you experienced, we don't do this. We only do this for Beyonce, which is what I've been hearing about. You know Taylor Swift got the licensing deal from Universal with Lucian Grange when she went over there right. from Big Machine. And we're like, oh, but she's the only one because she's the superstar, the biggest star in the world. But now she's not the only one. And that's actually very surprising to hear, mm-hmm. which actually says a lot to you and your team and your manager that you kind of sifted through all these deals and didn't take the first deal that came your way for the one single to give up your biggest song for $30,000. Yeah, that which was is not crazy. So that's great. But I, I guess I, I still am not super. Um, I don't quite understand the difference still of what licensing deal means versus ownership other than after, you know, set number of years, you now can do whatever you want. Uh, I I think that I could be 
a little bit wrong about this, so preface with mm-hmm. that. But um, my understanding of the difference between the license and the master ownership, obviously it's temporary, so there's that. But um, mm-hmm. so I think that there are certain things they cannot do with your masters. So no one can sell your masters other sure. than you. Um, okay. So yes. there are certain things that like, are just not able to be done that used to be able to be done. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, frankly, I'm not exactly sure what situations would arise where, like, uh, the difference would manifest. But um, just as far as, like, I did actually have to buy my master's. I realized in my contract that I had a producer who had partial ownership of my master's. And so in that negotiation, I also had to buy them back before signing my deal, Uh. which uh, was highly costly so if Mm. you have certain if you have recently signed a deal with a producer make sure you read it fully Mm. um 21 year olds um (laughs) so yeah uh that was that was a huge uh pain in the ass um and uh thankfully that's over with but um that was yeah super stressful um i yeah i definitely gained a few gray hairs at the end of last year but (laughs) obviously we we came out on a on a strong note but um sure yeah, uh, that's that's to my knowledge like the main okay. difference is that it's temporary and that y- y- you could kind of control yeah. where it goes. So now, um, you know, tip, I don't know, typical, but to major label form, so the first couple songs you release with Warner are more or less re-releases of your two, mm-hmm. uh, you know, viral TikTok hits, uh, Line Without a Hook and, and Mr. Loverman, but mm-hmm. now with special guests on them. So so Line mm-hmm. Without a Hook has MXM Tune, Mr. Loverman has uh, Chloe, uh, Chloe Moriondo. Um, mm-hmm. Now, did they facilitate that? Or I think I read somewhere that you mxm tune was a fan of yours and you linked up with her how did this all happen yeah um so with those types of features they're usually kind of like behind the scenes manager stuff or like Mm -hmm. um like it's i've found that like when you see artists release those especially label artists yeah usually it's not and sometimes it is but usually it's not like I loved their music and I texted them and we did this song. It's usually right. this market really overlaps well with this one and like let's yes. link these two people up and see if this works. It was right. kind of like that, mm-hmm. particularly with Chloe. Um, although we did know each other, like she like did a cover of like a Honey Stick song a while mm-hmm. back and uh, on her YouTube account. It was it was at the time was like the biggest content piece that the Honey Sticks had was her cover mm. and so okay. i had that in the back of my mind is like i want to do something with chloe at some point because like she was a fan of ours and then she had a big audience that kind of kept growing and eclipsed us and then then i had this moment and then i kind of had a, a an opportunity to like thank her in, in a way sure. was my logic um mm-hmm. but it was also like electra is who she's with um or mm-hmm. she's with a kind of imprint on electra called sure. I think, public consumption but um that was another label that was trying to work with us and sign us at the time and so we were kind of like testing the waters with this song but then we had the other song happen so we actually had this recorded for a long time the last remix we put out and then it kind of kept getting kind of delayed in the because of what was happening with our project but yeah so both of them i also did know mxm tune her name is maya um i knew her beforehand um a little bit Mm -hmm. um so they, they they were like 
my like they were sort of kind of like business decisions but also i did already know them and i and i did kind of want to do stuff with them and 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 get more into their worlds and 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 vice versa um so yeah that was that was that but like as far as go ahead oh no and these are just um they didn't really these are just uh remixed remastered with their uh vocals on them and so they just what opened up the original sessions and it was just like all right we're gonna mute you here (laughs) pop her voice in here and we're gonna you know uh bring your (laughs) add some uh more compression to your vocals and uh more or less it's sort (laughs) of like that it's not exactly that like we like like we for example on line without a hook we did actually automate some backing vocals into this track to make it sound a bit more full um Little things, um, yeah. Line without a hook or uh, Mr. Leverman. We actually did technically remix that song. We didn't yes. fully remix the other one, but we did fully remix yeah. Leverman, um, and I mm-hmm. think that you can hear that. Um, but yes. um, um, yeah. Uh, but as far as like why they happen um, from the on the label side, yeah, mm-hmm. they're a way to reintroduce old songs to DSPs. Um, digital streaming cool. platforms. Um, yes, like Spotify, Apple, like Spotify, yeah. and and that. You know, in my case, it's like, oh, this is maybe an opportunity to get on New Music Friday or to get on to mm-hmm. Today's Top Hits. Because we actually mm-hmm. were on Today's Top Hits, and then I saw on my back end, which is the 28 million editorial playlist, um, mm-hmm. uh, we had four plays on it, and then we got removed. Oh, and my And I don't know what gosh. happened. I was, oh, it was no. such a frustrating thing to see. Wow. Um, <laughs> I guess it was too old. I don't know. They they like new songs, which makes four sense, Four plays on today's Some, top Some, like, hits, really saw? small number, a single-digit number. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because, right, today's top hits is the number one followed playlist on Spotify, like you said, 28 yeah. million followers or something like that. And, and I have heard editors in the past say... You can't really buy your way into today's top hits. It's no. basically whatever is is trending on all the other playlists will eventually make its way to today's top hits. Right. And um, but it's semi algorithmic. Mm. Yeah. Like yeah. the viral playlists are all like US viral fifty and so on. Um those yes. are algorithmic. But um, yes. um today's top hits I've realized is not because there was a moment where we were doing that like we were mm-hmm. on you know not not only viral charts which are different than daily charts um, right. because daily is like gross numbers and then viral mm-hmm. is like I guess like percentage increase or whatever but yeah um, uh, yeah I think that they are semi curated I could be wrong yeah I believe I mean that is it is curated there is a person but I I believe from my understanding is is when the songs start um they basically are testing them out on all these other playlists and if they get a really good response they'll kind of go into a batch where the editor will be like aha all right this song yeah. this song that song you know it's um, um save rate yeah. that's the that's the metric they use is save rate um, save rate uh you yeah. know like skip rate save rate how right. many playlists you're at you know it's being added to like user personal playlist uh there's a bunch of different the metrics but yeah save rate is a huge one yeah well that's the one that i'm told all the time is like oh your save rate's going crazy on this song. <laughs> so like okay that's I guess one of that's the what few you guys things like. that we can see in our back end spotify for artists thing even though like spotify has you know, that's the one. Those are the a couple uh, st- stats they reveal to us, but there's right. so many more. And like, if you go into the chart metric backend, you see a bit more because they tap into Spotify's API. Um, mm-hmm. But there, there are quite a few. Um, okay, yeah. so so what's what's coming next? I mean, are you working on an album now uh, for your kind of debut Warner album, or what's going on? 
Yeah, um, I have two albums with Warner that are going to be happening. Um, okay. And um, the first one I'm in the middle of making right now. Um, kind of okay. deciding the release plan. Um, it's weird because we, I do feel like I'm building infrastructure right now for the whole project. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm like fixing my website right now and like relaunching that. I noticed so that. Like, the, the main video on your website right now is currently broken, by the way. So Oh, <laughs> great to know. Thanks. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I mean... It's it's a weird situation where like we are having meetings about the website. If anyone's uh-huh. hearing this and curious about the website, but um, we do have a functioning merch website, store. Ricky Montgomery works. Um, but uh-huh. um, uh, yeah, um, EP thinking toward the end of the year, um, okay. and then thinking cool. maybe like using that as like pick two of the favorite tracks from there and put them on the LP. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully mm-hmm. early next year is what we're estimating because we're kind of trying to like line it up with a tour and, mm-hmm. you know, touring, we'll see. Maybe the Fingers end of this crossed year. Fingers crossed we'll be coming back. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Um, but yeah, um, that's the plan. Uh, What's the then, process like yeah. with uh, working on this album? Is your work has your workflow changed at all now that you are with a major? Are they saying, "All right, we're getting you into this writing session. I want you to work with this producer and this writer, and then we're gonna. I want you to come up with a hundred songs, and then we'll pick the five best." Or like, how how is it working? It's kind of like that. <laughs> it's not as <laughs> as. Um, it's sort of like that. It's not the, as grumpy. There's it's a lot not as grumpy when they say it. Right. They're framed as suggestions, um, so they're not like telling me. That's like, what do you think about this guy? I think he's great, um, but um, they are usually right, which to their credit. Uh, sure. That's that's because I I did also pick Warner partially based on their A and R, um, which is cool. if anyone right. is going listening to this and going through their own situation with the label. You interact with your A and R most often at a label. Pick based on A and R if you can. Well, um, I'm going to add a caveat to that. Yes, you are absolutely correct. You interact most with A and R at a label. However, people are disposable, so you don't actually sign with true. an A and R. You sign with a contract and you sign with a corporation. So be very, very, very careful that it's, you're not just going with someone because you love their A and R. They could be replaced next week, and you're stuck with their contract forever. So just not quick only caveat. that. I'll add on to that. Um, you can be moved from your A&R to a different one, independent yep. of your choosing. I've seen that happen mm-hmm. to somebody. Um, but um, <laughs> it happens, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons. But anyway, um, yeah, so they are actually putting me in, in the room with some really great producers, and I have some some dates cool. booked with some folks I've wanted to work with for a long time. Um nice. And, um, yeah, I haven't had the, the sessions yet, so I don't want to drop their names quite yet, but, um, sure. um, and how are yeah. sessions working these days? Uh, are you zoom. getting into physical space? They're actual, you're doing it on zoom and like what audio movers or what, what's the tech you're, you're using? Um, I had my first writing session in person of the whole pandemic. Um, and that was because he was vaccinated. Um, mm. so, uh, you can do in person. Some people do in person, but they strictly do it. And Warner to their credit is very serious about this. And so is SAG by the way, who is a sure. behind the scenes, a very important union in the music industry, uh, SAG after mm-hmm. it. But um, mm-hmm. um, they are very serious about having people test and testing at their correct time. Um, mm-hmm. And so I did my COVID test on Saturday and I had my session on Tuesday. I got the results back like 
I think Sunday night. Um, was that with Adam home. Melkor that you had? It was with Adam one? Melkor, who's amazing. Love him. Um, also, I saw on him. Uh, you posted a little story on uh, him uh, melodyning some of your vocals. Yeah. And, uh, the percentage drift that he was using. Interesting. If you're wondering, Ricky Montgomery uses about 50% drift on uh, melodyne. Well, so, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to stay with that. <laughs> I just um, kidding. <laughs> but yeah, that's what Adam uses. Um, right. And, and I, I had used melodyne for years. I just didn't. I like. Man, I'm like learning everything at once on like Pro Tools and stuff like that, and so I'm trying mm-hmm. to like like right now I have my sure I'm testing out uh, my BAE DMP 1073 at the bottom. If you guys know preamps, um, but mm-hmm. so I'm like learning all this gear nonsense. But cool. um, yeah, so yeah, once another reason I wanted to go with the label was because of the resources in general that you have access to. So. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're an independent artist, it's a lot harder to get on the phone with certain producers, um, yes. I've realized. Because a lot of the times, like once they're in, they say like the Warner system or the Sony system or these, you know, mm-hmm. these companies that actually own the labels, um, uh, it's it's a lot easier for them to get work. And so they just sit at home and like wait for, you know, labels to pitch them people. Actually, during my negotiation, I'll, interesting little anecdote. Uh, an A&R at a certain other label that we didn't go with who was like really energetic A&R was like who do you like who are your producers you like and I was like I don't know Mm -hmm. um, some person Uh, Mm -hmm. and they were like okay check your phone and then I was in a group text with them all of a sudden which is highly (laughs) embarrassing Um, (laughs) but that's just one way for them to flex yeah yeah it's just a peek behind the curtain of like how I I learned like oh that's how it works like it's just A&R's texting people like okay (laughs) fair enough I guess Wow. yeah but um but that's that's kind of how it works is like you're like kind of liaised these deals and then you can Mm -hmm. say no to them if you want or you can say yes to them and I've I've Mm -hmm. mostly said yes I've said no to a couple but um only Mm -hmm. because of personal reasons but um sure yeah uh so they're over zoom right now that these mm-hmm. sessions mostly uh, how do you how are writing sessions working over zoom is there chemistry everyone hates it okay. everyone right. hates it um yeah. i realized i was yeah. on the phone with the producer the other day i I like to do like discovery meetings where i just get on the phone for like you know 20 minutes and like get to know them a little bit just to make sure that mm-hmm. i can talk to them um right and it makes sense and feels good. But um, yeah, at, at during it, the the guy, I guess his manager, didn't really tell him that it was like that kind of a meeting. And he was like, so are we going to like start writing or something? And I was like, oh, no, this is just like us meeting. And he's like, oh, my God, thank God. Um, this is like a Grammy-nominated producer. So he, even he's oh, like, gosh. this is terrible. Like every yeah. single person. I've never heard anyone say that they liked them. Um, uh-huh. but, but a lot of songwriters that do just songwriting, I've been working that way, like, yeah, it's it's all through Zoom. I've I've realized, mm-hmm. but some people are doing it in person. Are you going to keep the production similar to uh, the two singles thing? I mean, similar to your your LP from 2016, which is very band focused, very mm-hmm. organic. Um, or are you exploring other production avenues that might be a bit more pop? Let's say. Um, I'm going to keep it analog for the most part, um, cool. just cause that's what I like. Um, and, yep. uh, also what I know how to do the best. So I, um, mm-hmm. I want to kind of build on my strengths and play to my strengths. I, I, am looking at this next project as kind of like me getting on first a bit, um, with, you know, just having a successfully crafted album. Um, mm-hmm. 
And um, I was a lot worse <laughs> um, as a musician on the last project. And a lot of it was kind of done with like, you know, a hired out drummer as opposed to like my drummer um, mm -hmm. or, you know, bass players and stuff. And so I'm taking it, you know, kind of as a challenge, uh, you know, now that I'm a lot better at playing um, to play more on the record myself and stuff. Not that I didn't mm. before, but like there were like lead guitar parts that I like was like, I don't, can you make this cooler with like some yeah. other person? And then they would. Sure. Um, uh, so I'm definitely saying analog, but you know, uh, it's also a, a weird kind of digital era that I, I want to also participate in. So like a lot of the bands that I like a lot, like there's this guy, um, uh, he's a producer for Spill Tab, David Marinelli, um, mm -hmm. that band, they're, they're doing pretty well. I think they just signed to Arista Records. Um, mm. uh, congrats to them. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, he, I'm going to be working with him a lot and he's very like Ableton focused and you know, okay. they do lots of kind of like it's so, still somewhat analog, but just like a lot of effects on top of analog instruments, mm -hmm. um, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I'm excited to hear uh, what this next phase is going to be for you, especially the the EP, you said this fall or so, and then the, the mm -hmm. forthcoming LP. Um, congratulations on uh, a great deal uh, signing. I learned a lot from this. I honestly, you opened up, a, uh, you know, my world a little bit. I didn't realize that that these kinds of deals were happening right now. And so, mm -hmm. um, you, yeah, can feel confident that this was a uh, a solid uh, step, and it can be very scary. I would imagine uh, when you start to have these conversations with personalities that are probably pretty aggressive and uh, like trying to flex left and right. And, and you say, Oh, your favorite producer is, is in your, is in your phone yeah. right now on text. I mean, my God, uh, prepare me a little bit for that. Yeah. Um, it's scary. <laughs> so well, that's cool. Um, but it's, you know, it's been a slow grow and it's cool to see the development and that you have laid such a strong foundation that you, um, you know, have not just a foundation musically or with your audience, but even just um, with, I think, personally with yourself, knowing that just what kind of creator uh, that you want to be, at least where you're willing to go, because you've now done quite a lot and you've explored different avenues and different areas from the influencer thing to the marketing world with the band the solo thing and you've now this is the foundation this is the history you've come from and it's like right it's the uh overnight success that took 10 years in the making kind of mm -hmm. a thing exactly uh, which is the the story of everybody, you know, that we just don't hear about. And like, right, mm. the headlines and the press releases are, he blew up on TikTok and boom, he's a, it's like, no, yeah. no. I mean, like, if you just like dig a little <laughs> bit below the surface, like, no, you've had a, um, a very long, healthy career um, laying all of these foundations. So mm -hmm. Ricky, thank you so much for, for coming yeah. on the show. I have one final question that I ask everybody who comes on the show. Uh, what does it mean to you to make it in the new music business? Yes. So I wrote my little answer here that I, I have right. on a piece of paper um, <laughs> so that I was somewhat concise. Um, so in my opinion, yes. you have made it, quote unquote, once you can make a living reliably off of your music without giving up ownership of your masters or your creative autonomy. Um, and I want to add on to that inherent in making it is and, and in living reliably off of your music is understanding that the 
the current age is reliant on your ability to navigate apps that get destroyed. And um, <laughs> you can kind of anticipate that you need to diversify constantly, Yes, honestly, um, and, and be aware of, of the relationship of the market with your music because nobody wants to, but you do have to kind of be an entrepreneur in this mm-hmm. environment. Um, so yeah, that's a somewhat long-winded version of what I wanted to say, but I think that's a good answer. I, I love it. Ricky Montgomery, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Thank you. Real quick, I want to let you know about TuneCore. Well, I'm sure you already know about TuneCore, but you might not know that TuneCore recently, over the last couple of years, has changed a lot of its platform for the better. And, uh, you know, I've been I've been talking and reviewing TuneCore uh, for the last, gosh, 10, 12 years or so. And this is the biggest update to TuneCore that they have ever done. And this is a great move from TuneCore. What they've done is they've moved to an unlimited pricing plan. So where we're at kind of in the current stage of release strategy and recommended practices for how to release your music, yeah, you got to be releasing more music more frequently than just dropping an album once every three years. So to uh, accommodate this, they now have an unlimited pricing tier, which means you can distribute unlimited music for an annual price. They have also integrated splits, payment splitting. So whether you want to cut your cutting your producer or other collaborators, maybe some session musicians, you want to cut them into some of your streaming revenue, you can do that very easily on the TuneCore platform. And another thing that I love about TuneCore is their publishing program. They have TuneCore Admin Publishing. So, you know, I've talked a lot about this on the article on the distribution comparison chart on Ari's Take. But I wanted to let you know about these new initiatives that TuneCore is up to and everything that TuneCore is doing. Head over to TuneCore.com, check it out for yourself, sign up for a program, distribute some of your music, and you'll see for yourself. (laughs) 